Folks, this is Ron Longwell, and I'm glad you're here today for another episode of the Jesus Society Podcast, a conversation exploring relationship, renewal, and purpose in the kingdom of God. This is episode 77 of the Jesus Society Podcast, and what you're about to hear is an a previously recorded episode. It's an episode I did um, last year, um, sometime last year, I don't remember exactly when, but I'm re-releasing it today because um, the stuff we talked about in this episode provides what I think is some important background material for an episode that I'm going to release next week that I've been working on for a while. Um, So I hope that you listen to this and then also uh, tune in again next week to listen to the follow-up episode, the the new uh, material um, that we're going to release next week. So without further ado... Here is your blast from the past. <laughs> I hope you enjoy it. Hi, folks. This is Ron Longwell, and I'm glad you're here today for another edition of the Jesus Society podcast, a conversation exploring relationship, renewal, and purpose in the kingdom of God. This is episode 19 of the Jesus Society podcast, and we're going to start something really interesting, uh, I think, today. At least it's interesting to me. Um, I, I'm getting a little bit late to start. Usually I'm, I'm in here early in the morning sipping coffee, as you know. Um, it, is, uh, it is 3 o'clock in the afternoon when I'm recording this because we had a power outage today. So I was just about to hit the record button this morning and the power went out and it did not come back on until um, about an hour ago. So so there's that. So I did have my coffee, <laughs> but you won't hear me drinking it uh, on this episode. Um, today, and, and I don't know how long this is going to be, um, so I'm going to jump right into it. Um, I, I hope it's not too long, but you know, it is what it is. Um, one of my good friends listens to the podcast on the while he's mowing his grass and every Saturday, and um, you may need to mow slower this week. Um, just saying. Um, I, what I want to talk about is I want to I want to kind of bring some things into the conversation from church history. Um, we've talked a lot about uh, the Bible and biblical theology, and and there'll be some of that today as well, always. But um, Church history is a really fascinating subject to me, um, especially early church history, uh, the first 300 years or so. And as, as we get into this, I need to kind of tell you some things about my journey into studying church history because I think they're relevant. Um, I want to start by saying that studying church history has helped me a lot, a lot, Um and for me, this has been much more than just um, an academic pursuit. For me, every single bit of it has been in the service of faith and life with God. And look, you can go into seminary just because you're interested in the scholarship, because you, 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 know, you like a challenging study kind of thing, and, and that's fine. 
But that's not why I went to seminary. For me, it has always been about informing my faith and my ability to shape faith in others. And biblical theology is important in that, and I don't think anybody would dispute that, but I, would, I want to maintain that church history is just as important. And here's why. If you don't understand where you, where you come from, uh, you know, if you if you have grown up in a, re- a particular religious tradition and you've never gone anywhere else or, or been a part of anything else, um, y- you you may not know why you're you may not know much about your own religious tradition. A lot of people don't, um, and if you don't know where you've come from, you have no ability to critique where you are. And for me, this is really important because I have been a part of a tradition most of my adult life, uh, Churches of Christ, uh, that has traditionally held kind of an odd view of church history. And the view that that Churches of Christ have typically had is that um, shortly after the first century, um, the church kind of went into an apostasy, right, um, they, they sort of veered off the path, and largely that lasted until the early 1800s when a few guys, our guys, started really studying the Bible and at long last restored Christianity to what it was supposed to be and what it was in the first century. And when I became involved in Churches of Christ, I was taught that the way we were practicing church today was exactly the way that the church was practiced in the first century. And all that was fine and good until I actually started studying early church history, at which point I found out that that wasn't the case at all. Um, for one thing, the way that, that we were doing church and the way that most churches are operating today was and is significantly different from the way they did church, and I say that with kind of air quotes. I, 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 don't, I don't like that term. It, 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 it communicates all the wrong things, right, about um, gathering together with other Christians. Anyway, also, you just can't discount 1,500 years of church, church history and act as though there just weren't any valid Christians living during that, that, that time period. All of them were apostate that's just ludicrous. It's insane. Um, now, that said, what I have learned, one of the things that I have learned in all the reading and studying of early church history um, has led me to, to the conclusion that we have, in fact, lost some things that the earliest Christians seem to have, um, important things, things that we would do well probably to, to try and recover. So in order to try and get some of that back, I want us to spend some time looking at what early Christianity looked like and how it, how it functioned within the broader society in the roughly 300 years after Jesus. First thing we need to kind of just some groundwork. If you have never studied church history, um, let me just kind of give you a, a, a sort of an overview of how Christianity grew within those first 300 years. And this is like 
early Christianity by the numbers, okay? Um, in the first few centuries of Christianity, you need to understand there were a lot of good reasons not to become a Christian. Uh, both Roman and Jewish society imposed a great number of disincentives to becoming a Christian. Uh, harassment, uh, ostracism from their non-Christian neighbors, uh, occasionally even execution. Uh, we see some of that in in the Gospels. Uh, some of the people Jesus ran uh, into uh, when they started following him, they had a little bit of trouble with the with the synagogue, right? So we see some of that. We see that in in the Book of Acts, and as Paul travels around the Roman Empire and starts bringing people to Jesus, um, there's conflict um, with some of the some of the local. You know, some sometimes the local religion, um, sometimes it's just politics. Uh, in the letters of Paul, um, you see that there's conflict a lot of times um, because of some of that sort of stuff. So, um, so it, just by becoming a Christian, there were some you were going to face some some challenges, right? And if that weren't enough, as the church developed into the second and third centuries, the church itself often imposed its own disincentives in the form of lengthy uh, pre-baptism instruction uh, to kind of guard against cheap conversion. The idea was that only if you were really, really committed would you you stick that out. They were concerned, uh, rightly so, about half-hearted, half-committed Christians. But in spite of all the reasons not to become a Christian— Christianity grew at an astonishing rate. The the best numbers that we have say that during the first three centuries, uh, Christianity grew at an average of 40% per decade, or about 3.5% per year. Um, Now, that's that's pretty rapid growth, but it's not miraculous growth, and we need to understand that. Um, For a modern-day parallel, the Mormon church has maintained a growth rate pretty similar to that for about 100 years now, okay? Um, that's that's probably not true right now, but, but you know, for the bulk of the, the past 100 years, that, that's true. So in the early church, in real numbers, here's what this looked like. So by, by 100 AD, there were, there were probably about 7,500 Christians throughout the Roman Empire, okay? Which would have been way, way less than 1% of the population. By 150 AD, that's just 50 years later, there are, there are about 40,000 Christians, which is now up to about um, seven-tenths of 1% of the population. By 200 AD, again, just 50 years later, there were almost 218,000 Christians and now we've got about three-tenths of 1%. Um, no, sorry, when, when I said 150 AD and I said seven-tenths, uh, no, that's seven-hundredths of the population. By AD 200, 218,000 Christians, that's three-tenths of 1% of the population, okay? By 250 AD, we're now running at about 1.2 million Christians, and we're up to almost 2% of the population, by 300 AD, there's 6.3 million Christians, which would have been about 10.5% of the population. And by 350 AD, there were 34 million Christians throughout the Roman Empire. 
and 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 beyond, really. And those 34 million Christians represented about 56% of the population. So Christianity had grown so much and occupied such a large percentage of the overall population of the Roman Empire that in the early 400s AD, Christianity was declared the official religion of the Roman Empire. And a lot of things changed when that happened. And we will talk about that in another episode. Um, big things changed. Um, anyway, not going to say any more about that. I want to, but I won't. I'll save it. So, so Christianity started out slow. And again, by the end of the first century, 70 years after Jesus, there were only 7,500 Christians in the whole Roman Empire, which had an estimated population of about 60 million, as best we can estimate. But 200 years later, it had exploded. But that is exactly how Jesus said the kingdom would grow, right? Uh, Matthew 13, 31 and 32, Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which if you've ever seen a mustard seed, it is a tiny darn little thing. Um, It's a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds. Not exactly, but in, in what they knew about then, yes. But when grown, it's taller than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the sky come and nest in its, in its branches. So here's the question. How did that kind of growth happen? Why did that happen? Well, if you've read the Gospels in the book of Acts, you might get the idea that Christians were all just out there preaching on the street corners, stating their case, making an argument for Christianity, and that the public proclamation of the gospel, getting the message out to the masses and persuading them to become Christians, was the chief technique responsible for that kind of growth. And if you thought that, you'd be wrong. Now, to be fair, we do see a a good bit of public proclamation proclamation going on in the life of Jesus and by the apostles in the book of Acts. But all the evidence we have says that that did not continue. It's interesting, as you start reading through um, the the early Christian literature, and there's a good bit of it, um, things Christians wrote, um, a lot of times very influential Christians. But it's interesting, as you start reading through some of those documents, the church fathers and and other other things... um, you just don't see any mention, really, of public proclamation. It just wasn't anything they talked about, which leads to the conclusion it wasn't happening. And there's a reason for that. In AD 64, Roman Emperor Nero began an all-out persecution of Christians in Rome. And after that, it just wasn't possible Um, for Christians to preach the gospel publicly. So after about A.D. 64, with probably some exceptions in certain places, the early Christians um, became what... um, There's a a pagan um, writer who wrote at the turn of the 3rd century named Caecilius, and he referred to Christians as a secret tribe that shuns the light, silent in the open, but talkative in hidden corners. Okay, that's what Christianity had become. It was just too risky to be out in the open talking about this stuff. It wasn't that they weren't talking, 
but they weren't doing it out in a big, uh, you know, public audience kind of way. They just, the early Christians just didn't have an, uh, any kind of explicit program of evangelization. So, how did the, how did they grow so fast? Their evangelistic technique, if, if you can even call it that, are you ready for it, was simply to live radiant and loving incarnational lives in the midst of their world. In other words, the chief attraction in early Christianity was the Christians themselves, not their church services, not the clergy, not the programs, because they didn't have programs, but the incarnational lives of the Christians themselves. Remember that Jesus said, this is how everyone will know that you are my disciples. This is how, the, this is how you'll be marked by everybody else. If you love one another. In, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, Peter will talk about a, um, a Christian wife who is married to a non-Christian husband. And Peter will say that the wives should live such pure, reverent lives that their husbands may be won over without a word by the way their wives live. The early Christians lived a, a compelling faith that, that, that was all about love and counter, a kind of a countercultural freedom and justice and joy, loving Jesus and loving like Jesus. They were attractive for the same reason that Jesus was attractive. He was loving, he was caring, he was compassionate, and he was full of grace and truth. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, uh, Matthew 5, 14 through 16, he said, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill can't be hidden no one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather up on a lampstand, and it gives light for everyone who's in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Now, 200 years after Jesus spoke those words, one of the most influential early Christian writers was a guy named Origen. Origen lived from uh, about 184 A.D. to 253 A.D. Uh, he grew up in Alexandria, Egypt, so sometimes he's called Origen of Alexandria. But he eventually moved and settled in Caesarea in, in Palestine. And there he opened up a, a school of sorts for new Christians. And Origen's school was all about training Christians to live as lights in the world. Origen said this, he said, the churches of God, which have been taught by Christ, when compared with the assemblies of the people where they live, are as lights to the world. And he went on to say, interestingly, that even inferior Christians, which, which tells us that there were some inferior Christians, okay? Not everybody's, not everybody's 
perfect and living at the at the highest level. We know that that's just always been true, okay? But Origen said that even inferior Christians far outshine their pagan neighbors. So Origen's school was about training Christians to live attractive lives. But it wasn't an institutional kind of school like we're familiar with. It was more of a, a Jewish Palestinian style of school with a with a group of disciples gathered around a teacher or rabbi. Okay? And when students came under his tutelage, Origen expected them to adopt his what he called his philosophy. Now, in our world, um, particularly if you've been to college, um, we hear the word philosophy, and you probably think about studying things like the nature of knowledge, uh, reality, morality, existence, uh, things like that. That's not what Origen meant by, by the word philosophy. Um, remember, and you may know this, you may not know this, but the word philosophy comes from, it's a combination of two Greek words, phileo, which means to love, and sophos, which is, which is the word for wisdom. So philosophy originally was the idea of, of having a love for wisdom. Well, in Origen's day, philosophy was, was not about you know, a discussion of moral or abstract questions, but it, was, it, it referred to the changing of one's life, being transformed, learning to live life virtuously. So one of Origen's students was a guy named Gregory Thaumaturgus, okay? Now, when, when Gregory first got there, and remember, Origen's school is really primarily catering toward new Christians, okay? So when Gregory got there, like a lot of new Christians, Gregory wanted to spend his time in, in arguments and in intellectual debate. We've all met people like that, right? Uh, sometimes we've met people like that in the church, uh, people that just want to fuss, cuss, and discuss, right? Gregory was like that when he got there. But in time, Origen's teaching and influence won out. Gregory later said that Origen taught us to practice virtue. That was the goal of instruction in early Christianity. In fact, when Paul talks about what happens when the church gathered together, guess what his favorite word was? I'll give you a hint. It wasn't worship. See, we, we think today um, that, that the, the, the big purpose of the, the assembly is, is worship. We even call them worship assemblies, which is a term you won't find in Scripture anywhere. Um, we, we've, we've just got that so ingrained into our heads that this is worship is what it's all about when we gather. It's just all about worship. Sometimes we throw the word praise in there. Praise and worship, praise and worship. And I'm not down on worship. Worship's important, all right? But when Paul talked about what Christians do when they get together, that wasn't the word he used. Uh, in fact, I challenge you, I challenge you to find the idea of worship being the big part or, or really even hardly any part at all in the, in the assembly of the church. I challenge you to find that in the New Testament, okay? Um, I don't think you will. So when Paul talked about the early church gatherings, the word he most often used was some sort of, um, some form of the word edify or edification, 
it is the Greek word uh, oikodume, and it was the word used in Greek culture that w- to talk about building a house. In fact, the, the first part of that word oikodume is the word oikos, which is the Greek word for house, okay? So in, in oikodume, in edification, you're, you're building something. You're growing something, okay? And that is the word Paul uses all the time to talk about what happens when the church is gathered, okay? Um, and edification is not, sometimes we think of that word and we think it means, you know, comforting somebody or making them feel better and, and things like that. That's not the idea of this at all. It's about helping them grow into virtuous people who can live incarnational lives, who can live like Jesus. And that is one of the main purposes when Christians gather, to strengthen one another, to build up one another, to to help one another become a virtuous people that can live their faith before the world in a way that is authentic and genuine and transformational and attractive. In early Christianity, the ability to live the teachings of Christ was so important that, um, and this is, a, this is a quote from church history, uh, it, it was so important that if a candidate for baptism was in a kind of a sketchy profession, um, for example, a, a brothel keeper, you know, somebody that managed a, a whorehouse, okay, um, a, a charioteer who competed in the Roman games, or someone who had, quote, the power of the sword... Oh, I turned my phone off. Why is it still ringing? It's coming through my computer. I do my best, folks. I do my best. And my best is flawed, always. <laughs> um, where was I? Okay, so if, if somebody wanted to be baptized, if they were in any of these kind of sketchy professions, you know, the owner of a whorehouse or a chariot or charioteer that competed in the Roman games or somebody who, who quote, had the power of the sword um, or was a magistrate of the Roman city, they had to quit their jobs before they could be baptized. Well, in Origen's type of school, the most important factor in helping students learn to live virtuously was not was not a set of precepts but the personal guidance of the teacher what today we might call spiritual direction or what i called last week being a spiritual mom or dad okay well you know what gregory thaumaturgus called it he called it friendship friendship he said is not something one can easily resist. It is piercing and penetrating. It is an affable and affectionate disposition shown in the teacher's words and achieved by his relationship with us. That just seems to be the way the earliest Christians were taught to relate to those around them as friends. Um, Caecilius, who we, who we talked about a few minutes ago, don't forget, Caecilius was a pagan, okay? And he was not a fan of Christianity at all. But he also seemed kind of fascinated by it. And what fascinated him most was the way Christians lived and their, their sense of belonging. In other words, their relationships with each other. Again, the words of Jesus 
They'll know you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Decades before Origen, another early Christian leader named Justin Martyr, who lived from 100 to 165 A.D., reported that people were conquered for Christ either by the constancy of life which they have observed in their Christian neighbors or by the strange endurance which they have noticed in defrauded fellow travelers or have experienced in those with whom they had had dealings. In other words, people became Christians because they saw their Christian neighbors living so consistently in line with Christ and because of the, of the gracious way that they responded when they had been wronged or defrauded. So again, the way they lived their lives was impressive, and non-Christians found it incredibly attractive. So in early, Christi- in early Christianity, ordinary, ordinary Christians invited people into a relationship with God in two ways. First, through quiet, simple conversation with their pagan friends, their co-workers, their family members. And second, through the truly astonishing level of their charity work. And when we talk about charity in the early church, we're not just talking about institutional charity, you know, where you give money to church leaders and they do the charity work. No, the early Christians simply made charity a central part of their way of life. And in that day and time, that meant that on their own initiative, Christians would visit prisons and hospitals to provide whatever emotional or physical comfort was needed. Other Christians would, would hang out in places, and you may or may not know this, but um, it, it, was, it was very, very common in the, in the Roman Empire for if, if, you, if you were a family and you had a baby and the baby was a girl, you know, they valued boys. And if you, had a, if you had a girl, sometimes they would just take the baby out basically and dump them. They called it exposing the, the, the children, right? So they would just dump them and let you know, let them die of exposure or whatever, right? This was, this was really, really common, and it's tragic and it's horrible. But Christians would go hang out in those places where people would expose their, their unwanted children to the elements, and they would scoop them up, and they would take these poor children home and raise them as their own, right? Like those kinds of things. Today, we would say maybe the modern-day equivalent is adoption, right? Well, those kinds of things were just part of the daily lives of early Christians. And it's important to understand the, the, um, the kind of, of, of charity we're talking about here made them unique in their world. Uh, one early church um, historian said, that that kind of charity was foreign to the spirit of, spirit of the age. And as such, it had tremendous impact on the people around them. And all of that, all of that, was just attractive to the world around them. People living out their faith selflessly and lovingly for the sake of others. Not with any kind of big deal. Just quiet, ordinary lives. So here's the thing in all this. We are living in a world, at least in our part of the country, in our our country. Um, It's also true in Europe. Um, 
We're living in a world where more people every year are walking away from church and where people are regularly reporting being hurt by churches. And I have read a lot about that phenomenon, about why people are leaving, becoming disaffiliated. And I've talked to some people who have walked away from from church. I've also been part of of several different Christian denominations pretty much since I was a kid. And, and, And none of this is confined to any one particular religious group. But a chunk of those people who are leaving churches have are saying that that one of the big reasons they're they're leaving, and this isn't everybody, and I know that. I'm not I'm not trying to say it's everybody, but 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 a chunk of those people are saying that the reason was they that they're leaving is that they were not loved well, or that the Christians they encountered were negative and legalistic and sometimes even abusive. People have been thrown under the bus in churches for all sorts of reasons. Uh, I have lost count of ministers who were fired simply because somebody or a group of somebody's just wanted them gone. And they were told, like I can't tell you how many times I've heard this story, they were told that they would be given a better severance package if they lied to the congregation and told them they were leaving of their own accord. Yuck! Yuck! What kind of... What kind of garbage is that? Where we're, we're playing politics and acting like we're running some sort of hostile takeover Fortune 500 company weirdness there. Ick. So, so based on a mountain of evidence, both both personal people that I've talked to, people I've heard from, and the testimony of many many others. It seems as though Christians are just not always very attractive anymore. And yet it seems that in the first several hundred years of the church, things were different. Christians were attractive. Now, I know that there were unattractive, unformed, and in some cases malformed Christians in the early church. And I also know that there are some wonderful, beautiful, attractive Christians today. I know that. But I will bet almost everyone listening to this podcast has either walked away from a church or has been sorely tempted to walk away from a church because you you found it decidedly unappealing and unattractive. Negativity, church politics, abuse, and just a general unlikeness to Jesus are what you've experienced. And it is not attractive at all. Now, let me talk about this idea of attraction for a minute. Because there is a modern attractional model of church that is quite popular. And the emphasis is on making our services attractional. We used to call them, um, 20, 20 years ago or so, we used to call them seeker-sensitive church services. And I'm going to be a little bit critical and crass here, which may offend you. I hope not. But I really want you to think about what, what it is that is attractive about your church. Sometimes in trying to be attractional, we dress up the church so that it feels more like the world than the kingdom of God. And I understand what we're doing. We're trying to create an experience that non-Christians feel comfortable in because it, it feels familiar. And that impulse is not always bad. But I want to say, 
and you just need to hear me out on this, I am not a fan of that approach. And the reason I'm not a fan is because I think it sets the bar way, way, way too low. And to illustrate that, let me tell you about when I became a Christian. Now, I grew up, you know, like everybody else back in the 80s, um, listening to pop music and doing all the, all the other things American kids do and did. Um, my dad was, a, was an alcoholic, as I've mentioned before, and so our home life wasn't always great. And frankly, I was trying to get out of there. I was trying to escape all that. So I kind of, as a young adult, I kind of did, I went wild and did whatever I wanted to for a few years, and I made a solid wreck of my life, and that drove me back to God. Now, that's a, that's a, that's a, a snippet of a much longer story, right? So, but that, all that drove me back to God, and, and so I started studying the Bible with a minister that I had met through a, 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 a guy I was working for. Uh, Jeff Gilliland, if you're listening to this, I love you, and I owe you a lot, Okay. Uh, Jeff was the guy I was working um, working for, and he introduced me to this minister, and we started studying. And I had been studying with him several months when I decided to give my life to the Lord and was baptized. But here's the thing. I had never attended church services where that minister was serving. We were We were studying, but I never went to that church. Well, when I was baptized, I decided that I, I needed to start going to church there. So let me tell you about the first Sunday that I went to church after I was baptized. I walked into this little church building in western Pennsylvania with orange carpet and 1970s decor. Not very appealing visually. And the singing... And the singing was a cappella. This was a Church of Christ, so we didn't have instruments. The singing left a lot to be desired. It wasn't very polished. It was occasionally off-key. And the tempo of most of the songs was a bit like a dirge. Okay, Again, not very appealing. But here's the thing. On that day, I didn't really notice any of that. Because when I walked into that building that day, I never felt more love in one place in all of my life. I was literally blown away by how kind and loving everyone was. To me, to me, it was surreal. I got more hugs that day from people I didn't know that I could believe. And it was all genuine. They were ecstatic that I was there, overjoyed, in fact. And it was intoxicating to me. Now, as I got to know them over the, the months and years ahead, I came to learn that they were all flawed people. <laughs> Some more than others, of course. But to this broken 20-something-year-old kid, they were like water in the desert. And I knew right then that I wanted all of that I could get and would do whatever it took to get it. And that, folks, is the kingdom of God. In Matthew 13, 
uh, 43 and through 45, Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, and he says that the kingdom is like a treasure buried in a field that a man found and, and reburied, and then in his joy, he goes and sells everything he has, and he buys that field. He says it's like a, like a merchant in search of fine of pearls, and when he, when he finds that one utterly priceless pearl, he goes and sells, sells everything he has and buys it. That's the kingdom of God. And he's not just talking about salvation from sin and how wonderful it is to be saved. All that's true, but the kingdom is more than that. It's more than that. The kingdom of God is God's redeemed people living in joy and love and hope and peace and practicing practicing mercy and charity and justice. And folks, when you find that, nothing else is like it. And you will do everything to be a part of that. It is attractive in a way nothing else is. And it won't matter what color the carpet is or what the music is like or how polished the preacher is. And I just want to say, folks, please, please, if you have not found that yet, keep looking. And don't stop until you find it. And look, I, I'm not totally down on big churches. Uh, there are some very, very good ones out there. But I, I think, I think, just like it's hard for a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven, I think it's hard for big institutional churches to really be what Jesus wants the church to be. Not impossible, but I think it's hard. I think they face some challenges that smaller churches don't face. And that's because big organizational churches always end up functioning like big organizations. One of my friends who, who leads a large, successful church says that the truth is most churches are predominantly concerned with what he calls the three Bs, butts, budgets, and buildings. That's not the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God isn't something you can track on a spreadsheet It isn't something you can just create by technique or strategy. That's how man-made stuff is built. The kingdom of God requires God. I heard somebody say one time, he's talking to a group of church leaders that were, you know, all talking about the you know latest strategy and the technique, and he and he said to him, he says, You do know, right, that you can't do any of this without God. This requires a sustaining, transforming relationship with him and a willingness to allow him to lead. It requires learning to rest in his love, trust in his provision and his guidance, and to let him set the agenda for your life. And you just can't program that. And you can't mass produce it either. It's, it's just too organic. But it is the only thing that I have found in life that is worth giving my life to. And it has become so important to me that I see it as my mission. My purpose on God's earth, I've come to believe, is to help facilitate that, to help people connect with God on a heart level 
so that he can breathe life into them, pour out his love into them, and transform them into agents of blessing. And then to help those people gathered together to form ecosystems of grace that can bless and redeem their neighborhoods and communities as the kingdom of God. That's what it looked like for the early church. No fancy buildings, no pomp and circumstances, no worship bands. What is so attractive about Christianity? Christians are what's attractive about Christianity. The body of Christ formed into communities of love that shine his light everywhere they go. And I hope every single one of you listening to this finds that and you don't stop looking until you do. And with that, I want to thank you for joining us today. I hope you'll join us again next week. As always, we'd appreciate it if you'd tell others about the podcast. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe, um, rate and review us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. Um, please visit our Facebook group uh, for the Jesus Society podcast. Uh, you can just search for it. I'm sure you'll find it. Uh, feel free to suggest topics for episodes, ask questions, and and really, sh- if, you, if you feel like sharing your story of how the Father is loving you and transforming you, we'd love to hear that. Um, also, check out our website, uh, thejesussociety.com. Thanks for listening. And remember, you are greatly loved.